As uh, Adrian mentioned, uh, my name is Bart Eisen, and I have the great blessing of working with uh, the youth at Bethel Christian Reformed Church in Listowel. And I also have the great blessing of being with you here this morning and sharing the Word of God with you. Um, today we're going to look at uh, Jeremiah 29, 4-19. And uh, I felt uh, propelled to, to share this word with you this morning because I think it is particularly relevant to our lives uh, as Christians in this day and age and in this cultural climate. Before we look at God's word, why don't we spend a bit of time asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate the words of Scripture and to speak powerfully through them. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word. It's such a gift that we so easily take for granted. God, we have your word in our pews here. We have your word in our homes. We have such an ease of access when it comes to the words inspired by your Holy Spirit. God, we have it in our own languages, in a variety of versions. And yet there are people all over this planet who are desperate for just scraps of your word because they know its power and they know the hope it can provide. God, I pray that we wouldn't take this word for granted. God, I thank you that your son died on the cross for us and removed our sins so that we can have communion with you, so that we can be filled by your Holy Spirit. Knowing that we are filled by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray, illuminate the words of Scripture by your power. Reveal to us the truths in Scripture. We know that it is your spirit that inspired these words. God, we also thank you for the opportunity to pray. Lord, you give us so much strength and hope and insight through prayer as well. And so we thank you for this opportunity to talk to you, that you've removed the barrier so that our sin, you no longer see our sin, you see your son. Lord, as adopted children, we praise you for this privilege to talk to the creator of the universe. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, I have the privilege every year of going on missions trips uh, that are called serve trips. And I imagine many of your youth here have gone on those serve trips as well to a variety of locations. Um, they're a missions trip that happens for about a week either in Canada or in the United States and some beyond where we praise and worship and do a variety of activities. But I'll be honest. Uh, for me, I really do not like going into the United States for serve trips. And of course, you know our students, they love going into the States. The further away from home, the better. Um, without recognizing how much stress that can place on the volunteers or the workers that are going with them, they love trips far away. And the reason I think that I really dislike going into the States for service missions trips is because so many things are flying through my head when I think about them. The first thing I think of when I get to the border is... Are we going to get turned back? Are we going to get to the border and they're going to find something wrong with our paperwork and we're going to be sent back to Canada? The second thing I think of, and this has happened, is some kid makes a joke about terrorism or something else at the border and we could get detained. Luckily, we weren't detained. I don't know if they heard us or whatever, if they just acknowledged that it was a youth. The other thing is, what if one of my leaders doesn't have a cell phone package that enables them to get a hold of me and they're in a crisis and their vehicle breaks down? Or... A student gets injured while we're in the States and we have to go to the hospital and their insurance has some issues. The truth is, many of these things have happened to me. But another reason I fear the States is probably because of media. Sometimes we see all the dark and negative stuff going on there and we just assume that it's rampant and everywhere. But I think the biggest reason that I struggle with going to any foreign country is simply this. It's not 
home. It's not comfortable. It's not doesn't feel safe. It's not familiar. It's unknown territory. Even though Canada's not perfect, and there's really no justifiable reason that it's any better than the United States, it is home for me. It is the place that I've been called to for now. It's where my family is. It's a place that's familiar. It would be really hard for me, and I'd be taken by surprise if I was violently uprooted from my home and brought elsewhere. And I think this is how the nation of Judah is feeling at this point. They've been ripped out of their homes by Babylon, and they're experiencing all sorts of fears. And it's not like a positive situation. They're rooted out of their homes with hostility, many of them killed and tortured, and sent to places they don't understand, to cultures they don't have any comprehension of, to values that don't line up with their own, to places of worship that are not the same as their places of worship. Exile in a foreign land is difficult. And I want us, as we read the text, and this is a good exercise in general, to imagine what it would be like to be the exiles living in a foreign land. What would it look like for us to be rooted, uprooted from our homes, taken away from our places of worship, and forced to live a lifestyle that does not fit our own lifestyle? Before we look at the text, I want to give a bit of background. Jeremiah is a collection of oracles and prophecies written by the scribe Baruch. Jeremiah was a prophet in Judah, starting with the reign of Josiah, which was actually a good king that brought renewal and revival, into the exile in Babylon. He was not very much liked by the people. And in fact, when he was scared of the message that God had given him for the people, he wanted to run too. But God said, if you run, you'll have me to deal with. He had a negative message, and it wasn't received very positively. In fact, at one point, he spent days in the bottom of a well, without food or water, in solitude. He was tortured and beaten for his work. And he had to go up against some prophets, prophets, I say lightly, false prophets, who said to the, Babylon, to the Judah, people of Judah, your exile is not permanent. In two years, you'll be able to conquer the Babylonians and you'll be free. And these, these prophets based that promise on the fact that Zedekiah was a descendant of David and he was on the throne, and that there was still a remnant in Judah. They had hope in those two things, and they based their prophecies on those things, but they were false prophecies. Jeremiah wrote the specific letter that we're looking at at around 594 B.C. Just three years earlier, there was a rebellion in Babylon on the part of the people of Judah that were there, instigated by these prophets, and it was squashed. And Jeremiah, up till now, has had a very negative tone and encouraged the people with the fact, or said, discouraged the people with the fact and said to the people that you're going to be exiled. But now, he's more positive, And he talks about how God will be with them in the midst of exile. Let's read his word together. Starting at verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all I carried to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Verse 15. You may say the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword and famine and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets, and you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Looking at verses 4 to 9, one of the most surprising things about these verses is the fact that Jeremiah reveals to the people of Judah that their exile is not a product of demonic forces, is not a product of chance. It's not even the king of Babylon's doing that they are in exile. It's God's doing. God is the one who brought the people of Judah into exile to refine them and punish them for their sins. But God doesn't leave them there. And the message that God has given to Jeremiah for Judah is that they need to embrace discipline and try not to run from their fate, despite what the false prophets around them are saying. You see, Jeremiah is suggesting something quite radical to these exiles, something that would make no sense to Judah and God's people, given the fact that their understanding of their faith and their worship was heavily tied to their observance of God's laws in the temple and in their land. You see, for the people of Judah and Israel, Land was a sign of God's blessing, but land was also intrinsically woven into their worship. Many of their sacrifices required land to produce. And yet he tells these people, your faith is no longer connected to your land. Settle down, have children, plant gardens, build homes, pray for and minister to the land that God has placed you in. We must recognize that this is an extreme shift. People who heard these words would think to themselves, how am I supposed to obey the 613 commands God's given me in this place with its different customs and different laws? How am I supposed to make sacrifices for my sins when there is no temple nearby? How am I supposed to live out my faith and honor God when I don't have access to the things that would enable me to do that? And yet, they must be thinking to themselves, 
how can I obey Jeremiah? And yet Jeremiah goes against all the previous stuff that God has said about sacrifice and temple worship. And what he's truly hinting at is something that a lot of people have, have missed over the years, including Christians. God is concerned with the heart. He's not concerned with empty rituals and sacrifices unless they're done out of the heart. God wants the people to be concerned about the Babylonians. This is also a crazy request from Jeremiah and God. The same people who laid siege to our cities, who committed all sorts of atrocities against our wives and our children, against anyone they could find, and the cruelty of the Babylonians was not something that was unheard of. It was definitely a known thing. And yet, we're called to pray for them and to wish for their prosperity. And their prosperity is tied to our prosperity and vitality. This is a crazy call, but it's the call that has been there for Judah and Israel for a long time. You see, this was always the command for Israel and Judah. They were always supposed to be a light to the nations. No matter where they were, whether they had land or not, they were supposed to point to God. They were supposed to glorify God so the nations around them would recognize that is the one true God. So the command that Jeremiah is giving to the people and that God has done through Jeremiah was meant to encourage them to live out the calling they were always supposed to live out. And in fact, if we look historically at the Jewish people, they've done this for a long time. Even now, those who live outside of Israel are called to pray for the land they live in so that it would prosper. But that command is also the same for us as Christians. The truth is, even though we live in Western countries that were at one point considered Christian, we've always been exiles. We have always been considered alien residents because our citizenship lies with heaven and not on this earth. Could you imagine this? Imagine being violently thrust into a culture that is not your own, a place where everything is unfamiliar and strange. A place where a belief system of most people goes totally against your moral belief system. Your own moral belief system. Where the leaders and everybody around you seem to do things that are sinful in your eyes. This should sound a little bit familiar. We are aliens. Even here in Canada. Even though we may not be here in Midwestern Ontario because of God's discipline. Unless you really don't like it here. I personally like it. I feel that we are encouraged. In fact, we, I know that we are encouraged to be a witness to the people around us. They're, we're called to this place to bring about vitality and health and to pray for God's power and presence to be made known. You are placed in your home. You're placed in your church. You're placed in your neighborhood and in your community intentionally. It's easy for us to think that, no, I'm living in Exeter or I'm living in Listowel because that's what I chose to do. I'm living in this community because I like this better. But here's the facts. God is sovereign. And even if the real estate's good, God has placed you where you are to be a witness to your neighbors, to speak truth to darkness, to share the light and love of Jesus Christ, to pray for your neighbors, to pray for their vitality. And it, even though it may seem icky and frustrating sometimes to rub shoulders with people that are morally so different than us and who worship different gods than us, we're still called to be a light and a witness to the gospel. The Babylonians were really rough characters. 
And despite that, God is saying to the people of Judah, witness to them, pray for them. Sometimes I think we forget to do this. The truth is that we're called to pray for our prime minister, whether or not we voted for him. That we're called to pray for our neighbors and our towns. I believe that the church takes this command seriously through prayer and his voice, we will learn to be empathetic to the people around us. We will learn to have discernment and wisdom as to how to engage the people around us. We will learn through prayer and time in God's presence how to pray for spiritual blessings for Midwestern Ontario and for our country. We will learn that God desires revival, renewal for the people around us. We need to pray for that revival here and elsewhere in our country. Clinging to hope. Next slide. Okay. Verses 10 to 14. These are some of the most famous verses in our Bible. After several chapters in which Jeremiah condemns Judah and informs them they're going to be exiled, he seeks to provide hope to the exiles. But the funny thing is he doesn't use the most hopeful of words to the exiles. What does he say? He says, in 70 years, I'll return you back to this place. Do you imagine being in exile and hearing that? Being like, what, I have to stay here? I'm going to die here. And that is the message. There's debate among scholars how long those 70 years, when those 70 years are supposed to occur. Some say it's between the first and second temple. Some say it's approximate. And some say the number 70 is the number of completion. And all of those arguments have some validity. But the point is this. Those who are exiled are going to die there. That is their place. Does that sound like hope to you? Not really. But here's the thing. Jeremiah is, in fact, trying to provide hope to the people. Jeremiah is saying God still has a plan for this generation. He's not done with you. He hasn't discarded you. He still has hope for you. Jeremiah wants to be clear that this exile is not final. The most misused verse in Jeremiah, possibly the Bible, is verse 11. The verse that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and to give you a hope. God's not talking about you and me or individuals. God's talking about Judah and his plan to fulfill the covenant he made with them despite their sinfulness and disobedience. However, their return and blessing seems to be based on or contingent on the people's repentance and their choosing to seek the Lord and pray. God promises that if this generation seeks him with all their hearts, they will find God. He promises that if they pray, God will hear them. And we we can't glaze over this. This is an interesting fact because elsewhere in Jeremiah, God has said to Jeremiah, I'm not going to hear the prayers of these people. Their sin has piled up way too high. I'm done listening to them. And then when Jeremiah prays about these people, God says, I'm not hearing their prayers. So the fact that God is saying, if you're in exile and you pray to me and you seek me, I will listen, that is a huge claim. That's an amazing claim, especially because these people have no way to fulfill the commands of God with regards to worship. So the fact that God is going to listen to them when they seek him, He's going to hear their prayers is an amazing claim because for so many years, that was all based on their worship and obedience. See, this is a very good promise. Sure, they won't be able to get out of exile before they pass away, but God's going to be with them. 
And that is the best promise to have. And, and for us, that same promise applies to us. We're living in a time where we have actually experienced many of God's promises fulfilled. Promises these exiles would only have dreamed of. We have heard of the coming of the Messiah. Our sin has been removed by his blood, and we now have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have access to God. How much more should we seek God and pray when Jesus has removed the barrier of sin? How much more can we be assured that God hears us when we acknowledge that we've been filled with the Holy Spirit and his presence is readily accessible? This should give us the courage to pray boldly, to seek God's presence for renewed hope and guidance, to pray for revival so that we can be equipped to see the gospel change this foreign land. The truth is, we too are waiting for a fulfilled promise. We too are waiting for God to return. We're waiting for Christ to return, and it's been a couple thousand years. We may even have to wait 70 more. We don't know. We don't know when he will return. And we can get hopeless, but we shouldn't, because that same command to those people in Babylon applies to us. If we seek the Lord, he'll be near us and he'll hear us, especially because our sin is removed and his spirit lives in us. Despite the fact that it can seem hopeless and we wonder when God will return, we can seek the Lord and pray and find strength and comfort in his presence. The truth is this. God's presence is better than any land. And I know that many of you are farmers, and you're going to raise an eyebrow at that thought, but that's the truth about being Christians. No matter what material blessing is out there, no matter what we can achieve or gain, there is nothing better than knowing we are God's children and being in his presence. And that's the message Jeremiah has to these people. God's presence is better than any land or temple. And God's presence is there for us. Do not get sucked in. Verses 15 to 19. In this last section, Jeremiah details what will happen to the false prophets and those who follow them. In fact, after these verses, Jeremiah calls some of these false prophets out by name. Jeremiah is addressing the fact that these prophets are giving the people a false hope. The false hope that, that Judah will overcome Babylon or that God will at least protect the remnant of Judah. These claims are not true, and they're leading to senseless slaughter. Jeremiah predicts that despite Zedekiah being in the line of David and the remnant remaining in Judah, if they don't accept Babylon's authority and lordship and fail to ignore these false prophets who are calling for rebellion, God will destroy them so harshly that they'll be made an example of. And it's not like God's not gracious here. It's not like God has not been very patient with them. In fact, 2 Chronicles, which speaks about this time, 2 Chronicles 36, 15 to 16 says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Does that not speak of the heart of the Lord? But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people until there was no remedy. And we have hindsight. We know how the story ends up. The people of Judah try to make alliances with the nations around them to find comfort in them instead of God. 
They make an alliance with Egypt eventually, and the Babylonians get so infuriated by their behavior, they come in and lay siege to Jerusalem. The siege is so bad that people are eating their own children. And eventually Zedekiah says, enough's enough, I'm going to make an escape. So he tries to get out the back door, and he gets captured by the Chaldeans. And guess what happens next? He gets dragged in chains back to Babylon. He watches his kids die before his eyes, and then his eyes are plucked out of his head. Just what Jeremiah said would happen. The people of Judah are made abhorrent to the nations. The cruelty of the Babylonians is demonstrated. Anyone ever have a moment where you think something's a great idea, and then in the midst of that moment, you're like, this is a terrible idea. Why in the world did we do this? Uh, When I moved to my house in Listowel, I had my brothers and my dad come and help move me. And something you should know about my family is we are like the definition of Rami. Like, we are not patient people. We're just like, oh, muscles, brawn, let's get this and move this, and it's a disaster because, you know, when you move, you want to be careful. And my father-in-law, he's actually an engineer and one of those types that's like, put on the gloves and let's think about how we do this first before we do something stupid. But eventually, the majority of my brothers won out the conversation, and we were deciding how to move this giant shed on our driveway that was making it so that we couldn't park two cars in our driveway. And so my brother gets this harebrained idea. He's like, you know what? My truck's pretty old. Why don't we screw a two-by-four into the bumper and then just back the truck into the shed? We're like, oh, yeah, that could work. And we do, and it didn't end well. The whole bottom of the shed's terribly splintered. I fixed it with a lot of screws. It doesn't look pretty, but... The point is, while it was happening and my brother was backing up the truck, and I was in the back of the truck for un, some unknown reason, I don't remember why, um, and we were backing to that shed, I thought, this is a stupid idea, and then wouldn't you know it, we hit that shed at a pretty good tilt and destroyed some things. I wonder if Zedekiah had a similar thought process. He's getting chased by the Chaldeans out of Judah, out of Jerusalem, and he must be thinking to himself, boy, this was not a good decision. I wonder if that thought crossed his mind. But here's the thing about this story that if you don't pay attention closely, you'll miss. Zedekiah, by all rights, did everything right. He did everything right. Because in the past, how many kings of Israel and Judah were told, go out there and fight despite insurmountable odds? How many times were these kings told, it looks crazy out there, you're way outnumbered, and it looks like you're going to get slaughtered, but God's going to be with you and you will overcome. And then God actually does allow them to overcome. That happens all throughout the Old Testament. So of course it's easy for Zedekiah to listen to these voices and say, you know what, God will allow me to overcome. But there's one factor that we need to consider. Zedekiah was listening for what he wanted to hear. And he didn't have the relationship with God and the connection with God to discern what was his voice and what was a false voice. That's the truth. The Bible tells us that Zedekiah was not a godly man. And that he did all sorts of horrible things while he was king. He did not have a relationship with God. He was not listening for the voice of God. He was listening to what his own itching ears wanted to hear. You may be asking yourself, why in the world would you put these last four verses on this passage? They're kind of dark and they're kind of depressing. Why would you do that? Wouldn't you want to end on a positive note? And here's the truth. In this culture, this message is so relevant for us. Because it is easy for us to hear what we want to hear to hear what our itching ears want to hear. The the breadth and and the strength of the prosperity gospel are a prime example. Christian atheists, people who who say they believe in God but don't allow it to affect their moral lives, are another example. 
It's clear that people want to hear what they want to hear. And they'll take a pseudo-truth over the real truth because they know it'll cost them something. And because they don't have a relationship with God. Maybe the lies are a bit more subtle than that. Maybe it's not just prosperity gospel or Christian atheists. Maybe it's the lie, you know what? Because we're Reformed Christians and we believe in election, we don't need to go out and evangelize. God will take care of that. When in fact, God calls us to bring the elect to himself, to partner with his Holy Spirit to do that work. Maybe the lie is something like, you know what? It doesn't matter how I treat the store clerk and how much I give them crap for what they've done when they do something bad. Because you know what? God forgives me for those things and I'm okay. I don't need to behave morally. Maybe it's even more subtle than that. Maybe we think to ourselves, you know what, I don't need to worry about holiness because God doesn't care about those little sins. They're not a big deal. The truth is, we've all believed those lies at one point or another. And if we don't think they're problems, then we're in trouble. We need to run to Jesus. We need to spend time in his presence. If we're believing lies like that, we need to study him, to study his word, to run away from anyone or any ministry that seeks to diminish the gospel message or to change or alter the definition of sin. The truth is, we all fall short. We must recognize that we fall short. We need to run to God because he is forgiving and gracious and only his love can wipe away sin and point us to the real truth. We need to pursue God and spend time in a relationship with him through prayer and through the word and spend time in his presence in order to be, avoid being sucked in by the many lies of the world around us. We need to spend time praying to him because he will reveal the truth among the lies in our hearts. You know, as a youth pastor, you often hear these cliche lines. Like, a lot of youth pastors will say, hey, really important to have Christian friends. If you, it's good to have Christian friends. You've got to have just Christian friends. That's true. We need Christian help. We need the church. We need Christian support. So I'm not negating that. But there's an underlying belief in that, that those friends will help you stay true to the gospel. Those friends will help you uh, in your relationship with God. And that is true, but they're not the only thing. The truth is, what I tell students, you need to pursue God and pursue time in his presence. You need to spend time in the word praying over those words, allowing the truth to penetrate your heart, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you through those words and through prayer. You need to pursue his presence because if you're not spending a lot of time in the presence of God, the other lies of the culture around us will flood into our minds. And those bad influences will cause us to believe lies we want to hear. Zedekiah listened to the lies of people around him because he wasn't influenced primarily by the voice of God, by his relationship with God. It's only when we spend time with him that God points out the lies in our hearts. That's the funny thing about prayer. You spend time in prayer, and God often prods at the things in your life that you, that you see are not right. And he does it in such love and grace. And he speaks to those lies because he wants what's best for you. Yes, but he wants his glory to be made known to the whole earth. And he wants to use you in that effort. As I wrap up on this talk, uh, as I conclude, um, as you can see, I think this passage is very relevant to Christians. It teaches us that this is not our home. As much as it feels comfortable, as much as it's got so many amenities and luxuries, it's not where we belong. And if we look like the people around us, that may be a problem because we're called to be a light to the people around us. And we're placed where we are until he returns. This passage teaches us that in this exile land, we need to seek God and pray. And he will answer us because Jesus has removed our sin and we are his children, the temples of the Holy Spirit. 
Because we're his children and we know that God's presence is with us, we're called to boldly share the message of Christ and to cling to the hope we have in him in this exile land. Thirdly, this passage encourages us to beware of any preaching and teaching that's not from God. We must resist the urge to believe lies we want to hear as opposed to the truth of the gospel, as revealed through prayer and the word of God, as revealed through a relationship with God. Only when we run to Jesus will we be able to stand against the lies of evil and be obedient. However, the common thread in all of these lessons is this, and hear me on this. No matter what happens, or where we end up, or under what circumstances, there's one truth we must hold on to in a land of exile. Jesus is with his people, and he is no stranger to exile. God was with the exiles in Babylon, even when they sinned. He provided them with hope. God answered when the people prayed and sought after him. And God helped certain exiles discern the truth. The stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prove this to be true. Each of these men sought God, and God was with them despite crazy circumstances. That's also true for us today. Despite crazy circumstances, we are children redeemed by God. And though we are the church in a foreign land, and it can feel hopeless sometimes as we see churches shrinking, and we see people walking away from faith, we have to remember that Jesus was also exiled, and he knows that pain. And that Jesus is the Lord of his church, and he promises to bless it and protect it and make it prosper until he returns. Pray with me. Lord, as we look at the story of the people of Israel and Judah in exile, we recognize that you are so good. It's so easy for us to get clouded by some of the distractions in our lives, uh, some of the, the behaviors of the people around us, to get so distracted by those things that we fail to recognize that it's your presence that we need the most, that we need to seek you. Because no matter where we are, and no matter what experiences we face, you're with us. And it's in your presence that we know where we can find truth, that we have the strength to stand up despite difficult circumstances. Lord, it's in your presence that we need to find our hope. Lord, if we are in this room and we are finding hope in other things, if we're finding comfort in the things of the world, if we don't look any different than our neighbors who don't know you, convict us. Reveal to us how we can be a light to the people around us, to point to you, just as you asked the people of Judah to do. Reveal to us how we can share the truth of the gospel and bring about revival here in Exeter and beyond. God, we know that you have placed us where you've placed us for a reason and that you have called us to be a light in sometimes dark places. Give us the courage and the boldness to run to you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that your presence is better than any land. In Jesus' name, amen.